0: Theology of the Body Institute. This is
1: the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners.
0: Welcome back to another episode, episode 103. On our 100th episode, uh, Wendy had mentioned in passing, you'll recall, my love, that... uh, that we had had COVID in our house mm-hmm. and I got some emails and some people who were expressing some concern right. and we just kind of mentioned it and kept going and didn't really get into it. So we there was no hospitalization in our family. Uh, I, uh, The best I can figure is I was with my spiritual director the day before his symptoms started showing and that apparently is when you're most contagious. Mm. So I think I got it from him and then I brought it home to the family. I didn't realize I had it at first. I was getting these weird body aches. Yeah. Um, but I had been just been on a backpacking trip right. and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm so old. I can't do <laughs> backpacking like I used to. Yeah. I was actually relieved to realize.
1: Well, there's another explanation there's, yeah, there's for a, that pain. right?
0: <laughs> uh, and then when I knew, I knew it was COVID was, I lost my sense of taste and smell, yeah. as you know. And that was the worst part of it. Um I saw you suffering with it, Wendy, more than I had really been suffering. You had more fatigue and yeah. such than I did. And then it went through our whole family, except for our daughter, Beth. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, she didn't get it, yeah. which means she had the longest quarantine of everybody because we had to wait to see if she got symptoms and all however right. that all works. But anyway, losing my sense of taste and smell, I'm going to connect this to sacramentality. Mm-hmm. Um for me, it was really depressing.
1: In almost immediately. It wasn't even like, oh, it's been so long since I could yeah. taste. It was like immediately, oh, no, I can't taste anything.
0: It was awful. Yeah. And the connection with sacramentality, of course, is taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Everything we taste in our food is is really a sign of of the real food that we are destined for. We don't live on bread alone, as the Lord said. But on the Word that comes from the Lord, and the good news is that Word was made flesh, Mm. and that flesh has become food for us. So, food really, really does lead us to the Eucharist, it's meant to anyway. That bread from heaven, that traditional Christian hymn about, which is taken right out of Scripture, the bread from heaven that has all sweetness within it, right? Mm -hmm. It conforms to the delight of the person, which is awesome, We are meant for delight. And when we lose that delight and eat, I didn't even want to eat. I mean, I knew I had to for nourishment, but man, that was rough.
1: Yeah, it was. It was surprising and sad.
0: Surprisingly depressing. Yes. But rough in a relative sense. I know that so many people who get COVID have had it much worse than we have. And and obviously hundreds of thousands have have died. So I don't want to in any way, uh, take this lightly, how we, we got off pretty pretty sure. easily. So, thank yes. you, Lord. Mm-hmm. But thank you also for the concerns, those who mm-hmm. who sent those concerns. We are fine. We have recovered. Yeah. We're out on the other side, and we're moving forward. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for your concern and prayers. Listeners, we're praying for you and happy to be here to answer questions. And before we do, I have a question just kind of updates from TOB Institute. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, we have, at the end of January, a Theology of the Body 1 online, so the online version of our TOB1. You can click the link to learn more about that.
1: Great. So our first question is anonymous. Uh, The listener says, Hi, Christopher and Wendy. Thank you so much for your work on the podcast.
0: You're welcome.
1: I've heard you talk about our bodies as icons of God's love. You've also discussed terms like idolatry and iconoclasm. It seems Protestants tend to strip imagery from churches, while some Catholics go above and beyond with imagery. Could you give an overview of the proper understanding of sacred imagery or icons in churches as it relates to theology of the body and a broader Catholic understanding?
0: That is a great question, and it would take a doctoral dissertation to do it justice, <laughs> sure. if you were to look at the history of 2,000 years of where the Church has been mm. with images. Uh, but let's go back to to the Old Testament first, which forbade images of of God. And so there, there's a, a concern, uh, understandable concern, about is this even appropriate? But that understanding developed when the Word was made flesh. Scripture calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. So the incarnation is what justifies, if you will, or allows for or makes appropriate the idea of of a sacred image that can convey a divine mystery. Of course, we have to link Jesus being the image of the invisible God with our own creation in the image and likeness of God. Uh, Images of God are not a foreign concept to Scripture, but there is a tendency in the human being to turn the icon of the divine into an idol. This is part of the question you know, what icon, idol, iconoclasm. Um, I have a, a chapter of a book of mine, which which may be one of the most important chapters I've ever written in any of my books, is called The Narrow Gate Between Idolatry and Iconoclasm. Mm. And I'll, let me under, let me unfold what, what I understand by that and what we should all understand by that. Um, but the book is called At the Heart of the Gospel, Reclaiming the Body for the New Evangelization. We'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to read more and learn more about it. Here's the basic idea. There is a tendency in the human being to idolize the icon. We get a little taste of a heavenly reality, and we can end up thinking this taste is the heavenly reality, and that, then we, we turn the icon into an idol. And there is because there is that tendency in the history of images in the Church, men and women were falling for that, that temptation of idolizing the icon. And then there was an understandable reaction against that idolatry that blamed the image for the idolatry and said, burn the icons because they're just leading people into idolatry. That's called iconoclasm, the destruction of icons. The Church intervened—this is in the 800s, I believe, or thereabouts—and said, we don't idolize the icon, nor do we destroy the icon, we must al- allow the icon to do its job, which is to open a window to heaven. So that, that's, that's the balance, that's the narrow gate between idol- idolatry and iconoclasm, is this learning to allow our hearts to be purified so that we don't idolize the icon, but we let the icon do its job, which is opening the window to the heavenly reality um, this
1: a question that yeah. just occurs to me as you're sharing that is on the one hand I have like I feel like I have different understandings of the word icon mm-hmm. like when I think back to the 800s I'm thinking of a certain art form right sort of paintings on wood of you know holy images that I call an icon and yet this question is kind of asking about Art in general, and I feel like that's also what you're talking yeah, this about. Is, I'm
0: glad you're you're asking for that clarification, Wendy, because there is the strict sense of icon is just what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a tradition of art, primarily in the East, uh, Eastern Christianity, that has a, a, speci- a specific stylized way of portraying divine yeah, and holy realities.
1: And symbolic colors, symbolic and colors, gestures,
0: uh, gestures, and. The, the human forms are, are depicted specifically to reveal heavenly realities, and here, here we have the very principle of theology of the body, mm. right? The body and only the body, this is the thesis statement of John Paul's teaching, the body and only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. This goes back to our creation in the image and likeness of God, but is fulfilled in the image of God, Jesus Christ right? His body is the full revelation of the mystery of the divine, of of God. So uh, icon in the specific sense is just what you said, that stylized painting, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, traditionally of the Eastern Church, of Eastern Christianity. Icon in a more general sense is how the visible is a window to the invisible and that demands a seeing with eyes of faith. Mm-hmm. When we fail to see with eyes of faith, the window to heaven closes, we stop at the the image, and we expect the image to do what the reality to which it is pointing alone can do. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, we are guilty of idolatry, mm-hmm. right? So the narrow gate between idolatry and iconoclasm destroying the image, we must never blame the good things of this creation for our abuse of them, right? For our idolatry of them. We should never blame sex, for example, itself for our idolatry of sex. We are inclined to idolize sex because it is in God's plan. I know we've said this recently even, I think it was on our 100th episode that this question came up, mm-hmm. about idolatry and, and sex. Uh, sex is the number one idol throughout all of human history, because in the biblical vision it's the number one icon, it's the number one image mm-hmm. of, of the heavenly mystery of, of the Trinity and of Christ's love for the Church. So, we have to be purified inwardly so that we see the world with eyes of faith. Then we can recognize icons for what they are, windows to heaven. Whenever we distance ourselves from an iconographic view of the world, which is another way of saying a sacramental view of the world, where we see physical things as signs of spiritual realities we will end up, as we've been saying, blaming those physical realities for our abuse of them, and then we will wrongly think the solution is get rid of these physical realities. And this is what the the kind of door into the other side of this question about the Protestant perspective here. Protestantism, in its very nature, was a distancing from the body of Christ, which is the Church. It's It's like a limb of Christ's body got severed mm-hmm. uh, when when Luther left. Uh, Luther, as I've said on previous episodes as well, Luther had some very important issues to raise that were abuses in the church at the time, and part of that, I believe, was a response to Luther was responding again to a certain tendency towards idolatry. Uh, but we don't solve the problem of idolatry by going to the other extreme of iconoclasm. But during the time of the Reformation, it was one of, sadly, there were more religious images destroyed during the Protestant Reformation than any other time in Christian history. And this was an overreaction. Again, it was just a new iconoclasm, which was an overreaction to certain abuses that were going on among Catholic believers at the time, a certain idolatry of, of images. <clears throat> Again, what is needed is an inner purification, a purification of our hearts. We don't change the problem in the heart when we blame the icon and say the solution here is destroy the icon. Then you won't be idolizing it. Well, the idolatry doesn't come from that icon. The tendency to idolatry comes from the human heart. But destroying icons is an easier solution. You might call it a quick fix because the real solution, the purification of our hearts, and seeing the world with those eyes of faith, that demands a real painful interior journey, which we don't really want to go on, or we don't know how to go on, so we look for quick solutions. It's, it's also related to the Manichaean heresy, which blames the physical world for evil. Uh, we end up thinking physical things are evil, and we think the solution to our abuse of them is to just rid our lives of of physical things and live a quote, spiritual life. Well, trying to live a spiritual life divorced from your body, which is the main physical thing in our lives, right, is death. That's the very definition of death, the rupture, the split, the separation of body and soul. Mm -hmm. So there was another comment in the question about, uh, how could you reread it about Catholics sometimes go above and beyond here or something? Mm-hmm.
1: It seems Protestants tend to strip imagery from churches, while some Catholics go above and beyond with imagery.
0: Yeah, so so there again, we see right there, it, And if he means by above and beyond kind of that tendency towards idolatry, there's the one tendency of the heart, but then stripping of the images is the other one, right? Idolatry, iconoclasm, between these two extremes, there is... An, an elemental force, I like to say, that if we allow it to purify our hearts, we'll lift the physical world up into the Trinitarian mystery. That elemental force is the ascension, the bodily ascension of mm. Jesus Christ into the life of the Trinity. When we When we encounter the divine reality, even in eternity it will still be mediated to us through the body of Christ. There is no encounter with the Lord without His body. This is how it happens for us as embodied beings. And and this means the, the capacity of the physical world to convey the divine mystery is never done away with. This is part of our nature as human beings. We need images, we need physical realities, to convey the spiritual mysteries. This is the very principle of Christmas, of Christianity itself, of the incarnation, Word made flesh.
1: One of the things I uh, think about when we talk about this topic is just that over time, it's almost like Protestant Christians and Catholic Christians have have come from such different families that mm-hmm. they just kind of don't understand one another or right, something. Right. And especially when a, a Protestant Christian enters a Catholic church or maybe sees um, a devout like pre- procession with a statue of right, Mary. Right. And these seem so foreign, yes. so weird. Yes. And there isn't like, it's not easy for someone who hasn't like grown up that way to just imagine what's in the hearts of the people yes and we project situation. our own
0: ideas of what we think's going yeah, on and we just,
1: like if you just would watch on the news say or a film of of people in a you know a, a devout procession with with a statue of mary right and just think that apparently is their idol that they're worshiping and look at the way they look, you know? And so it's like this kind of disconnect that's really, it takes time to be able to kind of come through and understand what could be the heart in that family, that, that Catholic family that says, you know, I'm not worshiping Mary, but I really am grateful for her presence in my life. And I see her as very important and I know that by celebrating that, that like frees my heart to truly love what she is calling me to, which is her son, you know, to own that, that place of, of holy devotion and love for the mother of God, not as a worship of her, but as the gift that she is like that deep appreciation of the gift. Like that's what's. You know, can be and should be the motivation for those expressions, but how hard it is for someone who doesn't share that to even imagine that that's you're the making case.
0: such important points here, Wendy, and I'm so glad you're clarifying that for our listeners. In in the church's language, there is a very strict distinction between veneration on the one hand and worship on the other. Mm-hmm. We venerate sacred images. And there's a parallel here, you know, if if the sacred image is more the tradition of Eastern Christianity, the statue is more a tradition in Western Christianity. But it's the same idea, physical realities conveying spiritual and and even divine mysteries, right? Uh, So the statue of the Blessed Mother, for example, it is proper to venerate that as an image. What does that mean? To show proper honor, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, A deference. Um, but there is a strict distinction here between veneration showing honor, showing respect, or reverence, and worship. You know, the word worship means worthship, that to which we ascribe ultimate worth. And we only properly worship, we only properly ascribe ultimate worth to God Himself. So those distinctions are very, very important. And I, I'm going to share one more thing from... Uh, Dr. Brant Petrie, I learned this from him uh, from his book on the Blessed Mother, which is an excellent read. Uh, we can put that link in the show notes as well. But he says the reason Protestants sometimes confuse Catholic veneration of Mary with worship is because we have uh, the Protestant understanding of worship has kind of, in a way, been reduced to singing songs of praise, like praise and worship music. Right. Right? Whereas worship for a Catholic, the ultimate act of worship is the offering of the sacrifice of the Mass, is the Eucharist, and never, ever, ever is the sacrifice of the Mass offered to anyone but God the mm-hmm. Father. Right. Uh, so so the, that, the, that difference in understanding yeah, of worship a like a Protestant problem. comes into a Catholic Church where we're all singing, you know, a, a hymn. In honor of the Blessed Mother. And and in that mindset, just as you were pointing out, we've had these... Where It's like we come from different families, we use different words, we have different experiences, different understandings. A Protestant could enter in and see Catholics singing a song that honors the Blessed Mother, and they think it's worshiping, mm-hmm. because their context is the way you worship God is through a worship, song. A song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed, you can worship God through a song. But again, those distinctions are so important. Veneration versus worship. We hope that's helpful for our anonymous questioner. Thanks for the question.
1: Yes, another anonymous question. Okay. I have a question about waiting for marriage. I've been blessed by the theology of the body as it has given a deep understanding of our dignity and why sexual acts communicate lifelong commitment and should be saved for marriage. I never had this growing up. And it has changed my life.
0: Praise God.
1: I have many friends who are not receptive to this idea because of what our culture teaches, and I want to share with them. I'm wondering could you give a non religious explanation of this? Perhaps an appeal to natural law or reasoning that's accessible to secular people?
0: Yes, I can. And I'm happy to do so because these truths are written right in our hearts. Uh, The human being, if we are honest with ourselves, we know the difference between being loved and being used. We desire to be loved, but we often settle for being used. Another way of saying it is we desire to be seen, but we often settle for being looked at. And one of the things I'll do with an audience, I'll say, uh, you know, ladies, how many of you prefer to be looked at rather than seen? And never has a hand gone up. How many of you prefer to be seen? Hands go up immediately. We intuit that there is a profound difference. And what is it? What is the difference? To be looked at is to be evaluated as a thing, to be seen is to be acknowledged as a person. Things are dispensable. Uh, my toaster breaks, or our toaster breaks, and we we throw it away uh, if we can't repair it. We get a new one, because toasters are not only dispensable, they're replaceable. Mm-hmm. And we could get the exact same model toaster we just had, because toasters are also repeatable. Mm-hmm. Things, therefore, are dispensable, replaceable, and repeatable. But the word person— which was actually coined by uh, early Christians to distinguish what the human being is, and to understand the three persons of the Trinity. I understand we're getting into a conversation of faith here, but even the secular world has adopted this word, person. And it distinguishes what we are. We are not merely things. We are not merely objects. We are not merely something. We are someone. And the a person or the person is someone who is indispensable. When we are used and then thrown away, it wounds us. Uh, And that experience of being wounded is the experience of recognizing I'm not meant to be thrown away, I'm indispensable. When we are replaced by someone else and we feel that wound of being replaced— we are recognizing it hurts because I am irreplaceable. When when someone tries to um, imagine that—I I heard this example years ago, and I, I often use it—suppose a man's married to a twin, an identical twin, and she dies, and he's distraught because he lost his wife and someone were to come up to him and say, well, why, why are you so sad? Her identical twin's available, and I'm sure she'd want to marry you. Mm. It fails to recognize the human person is unrepeatable indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable. Sexual union is meant to express, I see you as indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable, and I love you as indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. And to see that and honor that means, it means of its very nature, I will never leave you. I will never replace you with someone else. I will never throw you away. I I will never try to to, uh, repeat this experience I'm having with you with someone else, because you are indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. And I would say to this questioner, if you can guide even the most secular atheist person on an honest reflection into the heart of the difference between being something and someone, and if you can get the person to recognize the wound of being treated as something rather than someone, the wound of being dispensed with, the wound of being replaced, the wound of being repeated, then you have the person acknowledging the deepest truth of what it means to be human. I am indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable, which means I'm meant to be loved, not used. Then, if you can get that person to acknowledge that sexual intercourse is meant to be the experience of that kind of love, now we have a basis rooted in our own experience of existence. Why does it hurt so much?
1: Yeah, that's so important.
0: When someone has sex with you one night and then that person has some sex with somebody else the next night. Why does that hurt so much? Because you have been treated as dispensable, replaceable and repeatable. That's why it hurts so much. You are indispensable, you are irreplaceable, you are unrepeatable. We can have that conversation without ever appealing to to faith or the Bible or revelation. This is human experience. Yeah.
1: And I think I love how it sort of illustrates what's different about human persons versus animals in their right. experience. And I think, you know, in the current world, there's kind of a lot of looking at, well, you know, in nature, you know, in other um, mammals, for example, there isn't this same yes. of notion of marriage. Yes. You know, so why are we? Putting that on human beings. And yet, all that you just said illustrates, especially, why does it hurt? Yeah. You know, that speaks to we're different. And I think another thing that speaks to our difference is the needs of our children. You know, the years of dedicated parenting of the whole person that's required of parents, of human parents. Yes. You know, and the connection of that with our union, you know, that
0: you're bringing meant- up a very important point if i can just sure, put it no. aside is we can't see this vision of the person and how it's related to sexual union when we're wearing as i say condom colored glasses when we remove the element of fertility we are reducing the other person to a thing and we are reducing the sexual act from a total gift of self to an act of using the other and we remove fer- as soon as you remove fertility but we we put it this way. Look at sex in its natural capacity and reality, and it is very clear sex and babies go together. Right. Right. And and the teaching of the church has always been in a nutshell: marriage, sex, and babies belong together and in that order. When you remove fertility, when you remove the the baby from the equation, you're also removing really the necessity of the commitment, because, well, we, now it's just something recreational.
1: And I think that expression people sometimes use, it's not hurting anyone, Yeah, that defense. It's not who's hurt, who's being hurt. It, if there's like an intentional blindness yes, about yes. The, the pain going throughout the whole of society and the effects of that, so many people are being hurt. I have a question from Lydia hey lydia she says hello i'm a young single woman longing to be married
0: bless you lydia bless you lydia it's sacred it's holy it's beautiful bless you bless you <laughs> <laughs>
1: and have children someday i've been praying for a future spouse since i was little
0: bless you lydia but bless i'm you.
1: afraid i'm going about it all wrong i want to be open to who god has for me without getting carried away in a fantasy do you have any advice on how to pray for my future spouse and keep my desire open to the Lord and trusting in Him?
0: Lydia, I love your heart. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing your heart with us. It is sacred. It is holy. And what I also love is your readiness and your willingness to ask the question, am I going about this wrong? And she probably senses something in there, maybe maybe a little grasping, maybe a, 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 a little... Uh, uh, wanting to manipulate the situation so she so her desire will be fulfilled. We all go through that. We all need to learn to trust that the Lord's will for our lives is better than our will for our lives, and that is difficult. That is hard to do. Uh, Wendy, I know you went through certain things when you were hoping to be married, and yeah. I know you can shine a bright light on this. Let me say it a little I'll throw out a little theological nugget, and then I, I look forward to hearing you share as a woman from your own experience. But what I think Lydia is struggling with, again, we all struggle with it, is, is the tendency in us, this is John Paul's language, to grasp at the gift. What does that mean? We as creatures are dependent. We have this yearning that we cannot satisfy on our own. And this can make us very angry. The very the very nature of the original sin is that we didn't trust God wanted to satisfy the desire of our hearts. So we we took it. We took what was not yet given. Right? It's not that the Lord didn't want us to have a knowledge of good and evil. He wanted us to have that knowledge, but he wanted to us to receive it from his hand in his way, in his time, with trust in his gift the very the very nature of the temptation is god's not going to provide for you it's totally up to you to satisfy that need so you got to go do it on your own you got to go take it that's that tendency to grasp so we all have to learn how to be in that posture of open receptivity to his gift so lydia god bless you on that journey it is not easy it's quite trying and difficult and every human being goes through it but it's 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 learning to to hold your dreams and desires with open hands trusting in the lord's gift rather than latching on and clinging so
1: i can just share some of my experiences relating to lydia um and it was not just mine but i, I remember talking about it with other friends as uh, several of my friends were young catholic women and We would, you know, just in conversation say things like, at my wedding, and it might be something about maybe the, um, the mass, you know, oh, I want to have that song at my wedding. Um, You know, this sort of hope and, and it's a beautiful desire. I'm not trying to cast that as wrong. It's just one example of that being a theme of our hearts sharing, you know, like that looking forward to what an important decision it is, what an important direction for one's life it is when you unite your life with another person. I don't know that we would have used all those words, but right. we like intuit it as so important and something we're looking forward to way more than, you know, passing a test or graduating or right. other things, you know, getting a job way more than any of those. We're looking forward to this. You it's know.
0: deep in a guy's heart, too, but not in the same way. There's okay. something there's something unique in in that longing for the wedding day in a in a woman. Okay. I mean I ha- I had my own longings and desires to get married, but I I, I can't say I spent time planning dr- your wedding. Planning my wedding, <laughs> or dreaming about what tux I'm going to be wearing.
1: <laughs> right. That's So there true. is a, there's
0: a difference here. Yeah, and it's a true. beautiful difference.
1: That's true. But for you as a guy, like you can tell me if this is true, but like when I'm married, it'll be like this, we'll, we'll do this together. Yo, sure. you know, yep. Like when I'm married that looking forward to that stage maybe is.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you, you come with certain expectations that this is how it's going to be yeah. and they need to be purified. You can't cling to them in the same way I was saying to Lydia.
1: Yeah. Um. So I, you know, I can relate to that. And, and I remember really, kind of being confronted with that history in my imagination in our relationship. Because there...
0: When we were first dating or...
1: As we were kind of coming closer to the thought of really getting married, I felt sort of like this relationship that we have with one another is a real relationship. It's not in my mind. It's It's not like just... Here I have this, a beautiful vision laid out and always before the, the face of the groom was kind of blurry. So now <laughs> it can come in clear and it's your face, Right? you know, right. and like, okay, and everything else is the same, except now your face is in the picture instead <laughs> of blur. And I really saw that in my heart, that temptation to like, okay, you know, put him in the picture and realizing that I needed to step back and just stay present to the real human interaction, which was about many deep things of our hearts and our stories and our um, our faith and our desire to follow the Lord together. Um, that really it just needed to be honored as as true and good and not simply something that I could now grasp hold of and insert into my fantasy. Yes, yes, picture. So, I don't know if my sharing that story is helpful to Lydia in acknowledging that there's a certain aspect of dreaming and hoping and imagining that's, you know, not, we don't need to necessarily not do. It's fine and it's an expression of our joy and our kind of a deep uh, intuition of the importance of all of this. But at the same time, to have a sense of God's going to write the story. And it's going to be, it, it, it doesn't, we don't need to imagine all those details because we're not the author. Like that trust that he's the author of the story of our life, the author and perfector. I love that yes, expression yes. in scripture that St. Paul uses, the author and perfecter. And so to trust him and simply as we see ourselves kind of going off in a daydream to be able to pause and say, Lord, I want what you want for me. I also remember writing in my journal I've, I've reread it since then uh you know i i really trust you lord but gosh i wish i could just fast forward and see where you're going i'll, I'll still live my life <laughs> up to that point but i just wish i knew what was right. you know later in the story and and just acknowledging that in my heart and saying but lord i i trust you with that i can't i can't know and i have to trust
0: in you i want to say as your husband as the man who eventually became your Bridegroom standing there, right? (laughs) I, one of the reasons I knew our relationship was destined for marriage was because really for the first time in my life in other relationships I had had with women, I felt like you were not treating me as just a face that could fit in a picture, Mm -hmm. that you really were attentive to me as a person and to our unique relationship. I was. I didn't feel like I was fulfilling some fantasy of yours, and that felt so honoring, and I knew this was a genuine relationship of of love, and so Lydia, I would say to you, of course, dream about your your marriage. There's nothing wrong with hoping and dreaming about getting married someday, but but keep that dream open to the Lord and say, Lord, purify my my hope and. I'm going to just weave a thread through our three questions today, because they're all related, actually. Mm. The icon-idol conversation, right? There's there's a tendency, because marriage is such a beautiful gift of the Lord and a sign of, of the heavenly mystery, there's a tendency to idolize it. And purification of that hope, Lydia, of getting married is synonymous with coming to see marriage not as your ultimate fulfillment, not as some... Fulfillment of a fantasy, but uh, as as an icon, as an icon of a heavenly reality. When you understand that, or to the degree that you understand that, not just in your head, but as a lived reality, the pressure's off. You know, you're you're not going to be looking to some other human being to be your ultimate fulfillment, and that that takes a long journey of inner purification, from idol to icon. So that's kind of related to the first mm-hmm. question. The second question about um, waiting till marriage for for intercourse, and the, we were talking about the unrepeatability of the person. Mm-hmm. You don't marry a face that fulfills a fantasy. You don't marry a caricature. You don't marry uh, some ideal. You marry a person, mm-hmm. and that person is indispensable, irreplaceable, and, and unrepeatable. And so you can't even. How can you possibly fantasize about who that is or what that would be like? Because I don't know. you. D- precisely because the person is is not something you can capture in your imagination mm-hmm. he's indispensable irreplaceable unrepeatable and we could even add incomparable you can't compare a person mm-hmm. to others so any picture you have of the man or the woman you're going to marry is not going to it's not going to be the same as the person you marry because the person is a person it's not something you can conjure up or imagine in your okay, head you can't just put on a grocery list, this is what I want in a husband, boop, 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 boop. And not that you there isn't a place for that. I mean, you, you certainly wanted to marry Wendy, a, a man who had a strong faith, yeah. and, and that, yes, you should think of that, but you shouldn't reduce it to that. If you reduce the, the, the person to a list of qualities, here's the problem. Qualities are repeatable. You can find the same qualities in any number of people. Qualities are repeatable. The person is unrepeatable. So I hope that's hopeful to you, Lydia. Your, your desire for marriage is beautiful. Just mm-hmm. keep it open to the Lord and allow it to be purified. And pray in that way. Lord, your will be done in my life. Please purify my desires.
1: And I also want to mention to Lydia, the um, Theology of the Body Institute hosts another podcast called Discerning Marriage. Right and the the host of that podcast is elizabeth busby and i think you know any young person or single person hearing this may want to also listen to episodes of that podcast and and just experience the light that that brings into your
0: great point if today's episode was a blessing to you please hit that share button and help us get this message out to other people who need to hear it and we could Uh, We could use your support. If you have been blessed by our work, consider becoming a patron of the Theology of the Body Institute. You can click the link in the show notes. We're very, very grateful for your support. We can't do this work without you guys. We hope that you have been blessed by this episode, and we look forward to being with you next time. Until then, know it deep in your hearts. You are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they're not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.